we are again with the Opening Bell podcast and it's fight week for Josh Warrington. The wait is finally over. We preview his comeback bout against Maurizio at Lara, plus the undercard, plus the action stateside and a terrific Marvin Hagler performance in This Week in History. We've got a book recommendation for you as well. Plus, we hear from Eddie Hearn, his take on the world of boxing and how it and perhaps he moves forward with it. Lots to get our teeth into. I think it's fair to say, Matt Christie. We start, though, with the news headlines. And sadly, last Friday, Neon Leon Spinks passed away at the age of 67. We will have a a really good book recommendation uh, that centres on Leon and his brother in due course. That'll be coming up in a few months' time. But uh, sad news at... uh, a variety of uh, cancers, the, the reason for his passing on. We knew that he was, he's been in a bad way for, for quite a long time, um, Leon Spinks. And Leon Spinks, when you look back through boxing history, really does get a bit of a tough rap. And I think that's because he kind of flew so high so early on in his career. Seven professional fights in and he takes on and conquers Muhammad Ali. And while I was going through Muhammad Ali's record at the weekend while doing some work on, 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 on the Leon Spinks passing, you realise that Leon Spinks is the only boxer to take the world heavyweight title away from Muhammad Ali inside the ring. Now, that alone is some achievement. Now, Neon Leon, um, we've got something in this week's issue that is written by the brilliant... Uh, boxing scribe, bit of a veteran now, is Mike Marley, and he was the person, or so he claims, that coined the phrase Neon Leon, of of course, because he had a bit of a love of the nightlife, and of course he infamously strayed from the path pretty much as soon as he'd won the world heavyweight title from Muhammad Ali, and wasn't as disciplined or dedicated in the rematch. And his career, if we are being honest, did kind of stumble and dissent uh, quite slowly after that, where he went into a world title fight with Larry Holmes and he was lost in three rounds. He lost a cruiserweight title fight to Dwight Muhammad Cowie. But what Leon Spinks achieved in February 1978 should put him right up there in the upper echelon of, uh, of heavyweight boxers. And that uh, was under two years after he turned pro. Uh, uh, of course, having won the 1976 Olympic gold in Montreal. So only two years later, or thereabouts, that he was fighting Ali as a seven and O pro. We talk about the Olympians these days being fast track, but you look back to to then and seven and O. He went in again, Stali in Vegas, weighing 197 pounds, of course, which would only be uh, just under cruiserweight these days. He's remarkable. Yeah, he was. He was. He was six six zero and one. I think. I think he'd got a draw on his record at that point, which almost makes the the victory over Ali even more sensational. I mean, the, the, at, at that point, Ali was winding down and perhaps picking and chooses, choosing his opponents a bit more than he had been in the past. But it, it was a rude awakening for Ali then. And Spinks, I think, it was. You, you could make an argument that he was. He would have been much better. Uh, as a cruiserweight, and he had quite a successful career at cruiserweight. He was he was in the top ten for quite some time, um, but yeah, you look back, and what what really what really really um, is apparent when you're looking kind of at obituaries 
of Leon Spinks, from Mike Marley and from other people, and you know, I spent a little bit of time with Leon Spinks a couple of times over the years, is that he had an absolute heart of gold. Now, of course, we always say this, don't we? But I think that this has been kind of the blanket opinion of Leon Spinks, the man. And um, yeah, many, 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 many sad people there when, when Leon passed away over the weekend. I love some of those old photos of his big toothy smile well, as well. Yeah, There's yeah, some, some absolute crackers around, isn't there, man? Yeah, absolutely. You say that. It's funny because I did the... Um, I was up fairly late. I'm not sure what night it was. I think it was uh, Saturday night it would have been. Um, so I did actually did... Generally, it's Nick Bond who looks after the Boxing News Ed Twitter account. But, but now and again, I'll do it. And I'd seen that, that, that Spinks had passed away. Um, so I chose this picture of Leon Spinks that was him with his... Without his two front teeth in, without his front teeth in, um, and a lot of people are like, "What? How disrespectful! Why would you use that picture?" Because that's what he looked like. That was that was Leon Spinks, the fighter. That's how we remember Leon Spinks. Um, well, yeah. So... Whenever I think of him, that's <laughs> that's the, the the image I have. Absolutely right. So he was an Olympian, uh, a young man we mentioned on last week's show, who of course would have gone to uh, the Olympics. Uh, that didn't happen last summer. So he's turned pro. That's Kashawn Davis. He's turned pro with Matchroom USA, which means he will make his debut on February the twenty seventh on that Canelo Yildirim Miami bill. Also on that, by the way. Uh, JC Martinez, Julio Cesar Martinez against uh, Arroyo, which we mentioned uh, before. So really look forward to seeing the, the talented uh, world silver medalist from the amateur ranks, the American Kashawn Davis, make his debut on that February Canelo uh, bill. Um, you've moved house since last week. I can see you've still to put a a few pictures up on the up on the wall. Looking forward to, to decorating, settling in. How's it gone? Yeah, it's been a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's it was nice once we were settled, but we got in, we realised that the fridge that we'd ordered was too big. The settees <laughs> didn't fit the way we wanted them to fit, and it's not like we didn't measure things beforehand. We measured things that we thought we'd make in notes as we were looking at it, and. Yeah, everything was too big. I had to saw the top of the bookcase off in this office that I'm in now. <laughs> but I'm at the, I'm at the um, end of the garden now in my own office. Previously, when we were doing the podcast, I was in the kitchen, um, which was always a bit of a nightmare to work in the kitchen because obviously I'm sitting by a kettle. So whenever my, my wife would come in, it would be, oh, she's going to make a cup of tea and then she'll have a chat while I'm obviously trying to do some work. So now I am kind of here in my own office, got all my boxing books to my right. Um, and yet, yeah, as you can see, I'm still in the process of getting it exactly how I want it. But um, oh, quite understandably, quite understandably, the priority over the weekend, as much as I wanted to do, wanted it to be, was not my office. So I was in the, I was in the house sorting all stuff out over the weekend, but it's taking what, what shape. Goes, in terms of memorabilia, because I've got um, sort of stair well and, and hallway upstairs is is full of, of boxing stuff and I'm very lucky that my partner uh, Hannah has allowed me and, and doesn't kick up a, a stink about all of that so I, I'm not I don't collect loads and loads of stuff but what I tend to do is either memorabilia that somehow is I've got a connection uh, to so I, we had Ricky Hatton on one of my boxing shows on Box Nation uh, recalling his his fight with Costa Zhu, he came into the studio. Frank Warren came into the uh, the studio, and it was John Evans actually who writes for Boxing News. He was in uh, giving it the journalist's opinion as well, and the uh, the four of us sort of watched rounds from the fight. Uh, anyway, Ricky came in, 
and I got him to sign a pair of boxing gloves. One so that I keep keep for myself, selfishly, uh, and the other that we could give away to uh, uh, one of our viewers, and, and one lucky viewer got, got one of those gloves. I've got the other one hanging up in the, in the house. Uh, I've got a pair of Mick Conlon's gloves, which not ones he wore when he won the World Championships in Doha in 2015, but a, a, a set of rec replica gloves signed by Mick. So I've got those. And then I've got fight posters from fights that I've been to. So Canelo Golovkin won. I've got that on-site fight poster um, and I've got that framed. Um, I've got another uh, couple of Ali uh, ones and then I've got a couple of others. Frampton against Leo Santa Cruz. Again, the on-site Corona, um, Richard Sloan, and anyone who knows Richard Sloan yeah, will absolutely. know that style, absolutely. almost sort of smudged um, uh, watercolour uh, style of, of his art. I've got one in Fra Frampton and Santa Cruz that, that Corona did on-site, so you had to be there to get it. And those were limited edition. I've got one of those framed as well. So, so stuff that means something to me what what about you what, what will your walls be decorated by yeah see this you know you, you've got an embarrassment of riches compared to <laughs> compared to what i've got i i'm not one really to i will collect kind of tidbits as opposed to i will very rarely go to a fight and buy a poster i might get the odd t-shirt or something like that but and i think i'll live to regret that if i'm honest with you because as you know, as with anything in life, you don't really appreciate something until it's gone. So I, at the moment, will I will go on eBay or look for old fight posters, posters say from the 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, anything like that, I adore. The old, the really, really old school stuff I adore. But for example, um, the one thing that I will always keep, because I've been to kind of countless fights in, in America now, and, and some, most of the big fights over here in the last 10 years, so lucky to have done that. Um, if, if I think the fight is particularly um, going to be noteworthy through history, I'll, I'll keep the programme. Um, I always keep the lanyard. The only thing I ever keep is the lanyard. So now when lanyards and don't really seem to be, because the, they're quite expensive, a lanyard for for a promoter to to churn out a load of lanyards to give to the media that's quite expensive that doesn't seem to be the thing anymore um but over there i have got my ticket stub from the mayweather pacquiao weigh-in um because that weigh-in was just one of the most incredible things i've ever been to in my life so it's just little things like that that mean a lot to me personally um but in terms of what will the walls be decorated, I don't know. I've got boxes and boxes of stuff here, like old posters, newspaper clippings, various things from the boxing world, which just mean a lot to me personally. So, um, yeah, it will be something of a treasure trove in here. It will be. And I think, I think these days boxing programmes tend to be pretty poor. And I know as, as someone who's gone as a, um, as a member of the, the press generally ringside as as a member of the the, the TV um, that you you know I I've been to most I would say over the last five years I've I've never been given a program ringside I think in the old days you you would have had one on your seat or or there would have been someone hanging out but I I I think I have got two or three programs and they tend not to be very good these days anyway from the last five six seven years i've got to say and maybe it's different for fans maybe they're, they're better served yeah i don't i mean yeah i don't really um i don't i don't sit and read them i've got to be honest it's more you know say for example with 
the I suppose it's if I think they're going to be valuable, if, if I'm being honest as well. So, for example, the Ruiz-Joshua rematch. How many, people are going to, how many people are going to own that? How many people are going to have the Mayweather-Pacquiao? And things like that. So, um, yeah, but the last thing I want to do when I sit ringside is start, is start reading a programme, if I'm honest, after spending the last three months building up to it, writing about it every single day. But, yeah, I hear you, I hear you. But I think for me, I think I would like to get some nice original, original fight posters. But you look at the price of some of them. Look at the price of some of those old school fight posters, and they are extortionate. But the, the some of the Marvin Hagler, the Hagler Hearns, which I think you can get for about three grand, original fight poster <laughs> and things like that. So that that that's really what catches my eye. That's what catches my. Eye. And one of the things that I never ever do, and I may have done it on a handful of, of occasions, is I never ever have my photograph taken with a boxer. And I also think, and I think that's quite right, really. I think there's something about it which is a little bit unprofessional, is a little bit cringy. But also, I understand the opposite side of that as well. The, 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 and I think when I get older, and I'm telling whoever might be interested, oh, I used to, I used to work in boxing. Oh, did you, did you ever get to meet, I don't know, Anthony Joshua, Floyd Mayweather, Tyson Fury? And I haven't got a single photo to, uh, to back it up. To verify it. Yeah, to be honest, I've generally been like that. But I remember uh, for Frampton against uh, Kiko Martinez too, when it was at the Titanic and it was the outdoor freezing cold night that was in Belfast. But I remember Sergio Martinez, who was was managing uh, Kiko, wasn't he? And and he was there ringside that night. And I would say of the, the 17,000 people who were ringside that night, I reckon about 15,500 people got their photos taken with Sergio Martinez, or at least to two or 3,000 yeah. that were immediately uh, with ringside seats. And I would say every single one of them got their photos taken with Sergio Martinez. And I was like you, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I've got to be professional. I'm, I'm here to broadcast and do a job. And then afterwards, I think, Get over yourself, mate. It's not, you know, just get on with it. There's yeah. nothing wrong with a photo. Don't be, don't be too sensitive or overly professional about it. Just get a photo with it. Uh, there, we, there we are. But anyway, let's move on. Final piece of, of news. We're going to hear from Eddie Hearn. You went to meet him uh, earlier on this week, so we're going to play you out uh, a good portion um, on selected subjects uh, there, one of which is his reaction to the panorama uh, investigation of, of, of last uh, week. Now, since then, uh, Daniel Kinahan made a statement which was read out on Talk Sport. Um, now, I should say at this stage, in the interest of, of fairness, uh, I commentate for MTK. I'm the commentator for MTK's uh, shows. But, I, you know, I'm neither partisan or, nor informed. I don't know anything else other than what you or anyone else has, has seen or heard, um, and you would have watched that programme, I suspect, uh, as well. But the, So uh, I suppose the interesting thing, the, the statement uh, came out, read out on Talk Sport the, the other day. I suppose it's an obvious thing to do uh, for Daniel Kinnan. If you consider yourself um, innocent of those allegations, then I, I guess it makes sense to make a public statement like that. What, what was your reaction to that news and hearing that statement? Um, my, um, well, the, the, the statement was actually released, I think, cause I went to see, 
um, Eddie Hearn on Monday morning um, with view to getting the uh, the feature in this week's Boxing News as the cover story. So it was all turned around quite quickly, bearing in mind that everything needs to be done by Monday evening. Then on Tuesdays, we're checking out, we're, che- we're laying out pages and, and, and double-checking them, triple-checking them. Anyway, so when I went to see Eddie Hearn, um, at Matchroom HQ in Brentwood on a snowy Monday morning this week. Um, we sat down probably for about an hour and a half in total in the end. Um, and um, it was during that hour and a half that the Daniel Kinahan statement had been read out. So by the time I left Eddie Hearn, the statement had been read out. When I got to Eddie Hearn, it hadn't been so i couldn't i couldn't talk to him about that statement at the time but my own my own reaction to it is is that yes it it is i guess what you would do if you were in that situation um is to keep keep um proclaiming your innocence um i just think the more that we hear about this, the more that we're forced to talk about this, the more damaging it is to the sport. Um, I've seen a lot of people blaming boxing for not doing more. Now, I myself said that boxing needs to get its house in order so that it isn't a revolving door of various characters, that, that if you have the right contacts, you got a bit of cash in your pocket, then you can make an impact in the sport, irrespective of your past or irrespective of um, any accusations, founded or unfounded, that may be levelled at you. That is a problem for me. But the longer that this goes on, the more damaging this is to the sport of boxing that Daniel Kinahan professes to respect and... You know, he's, he said something like it was, uh, it's a great honour to work in the sport of boxing. But the longer that we're talking about all of this, the more damaging it becomes to the sport in the public eye, outside of the boxing bubble, everybody looking in, and we're still trying to justify this. But you also do surely, as I have, have to ask yourself, okay, boxing has allowed this person in. But it's also a massive law enforcement responsibility, isn't it? That, for me, is, 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 is the difficult thing. Now, I spoke to Robert Smith. Now, part of my thinking was, was that it's as much the sport's re- responsibility to prove, perhaps, that he doesn't belong as it is Daniel Kinahan's to prove that he does. So why doesn't he go and try and legitimise his position in the sport. He's an agent, sorry, he's an advisor, which doesn't need a licence, but a matchmaker would need a licence, a manager would need a licence, a trainer would need a licence. I spoke to Robert Smith and said, well, if Daniel Kinahan was to come to you and ask you, can I have a manager's licence, please, what would your reaction be? He said, well, he wouldn't be able to get a manager's licence because you need three years' documented experience in the sport. Okay, well, what about a trainer? Or a matchmaker. Yeah, he he could apply. He could apply. Um, But we would not grant him a license 
until um, that that all of the issues with the Irish authorities are resolved. Um, so he can't get a boxing license. He can't get a boxing license. He wouldn't be granted a boxing license, yet he is one of the most influential people in the sport, we are told. That's where we've got a problem. That's where we've got a problem. Um, I don't like discussing this all the time. I don't like writing about it every week, to be perfectly honest, for obvious, what I hope are obvious reasons. Um, but the situation, I don't believe, can carry on this way. We can't keep. Ha- we can't have this lingering all the way and dragging dragging along behind the sport as we're supposed to be championing Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua. So what do we do? Do we all turn a blind eye to it? Like we have done for years and years and years? Is that what we do? Is that a solution? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, and as I outlined last week, and anybody that didn't listen to last week's podcast, go back and listen to it. I outlined last week exactly why I believe that the sport has to, has to, be very, very careful with its public image moving forward. You also said last week, though, Matt, that actually the sport or the the individual uh, organisations or, or, or areas of the sport, you also said last week, what actually can they do about it? In what way are they empowered to do anything about it, if indeed... There is something to do about it at all as well. Let, let, let's move it on to uh, Eddie, because I know you, you asked Eddie, first of all, for his reaction to the, the, the panorama thing. You deal uh, as well, the section we're going to hear from you here, deal with that, you deal with the WBA, and we get the latest uh, on Tyson Fury as well. Outside of, of those subjects, why did you go and see him? What, what, what was the the interest, what was the idea, what was it that he wanted to talk about? Well, you know, I mean, what I've been interested in, we know that Eddie Hearn generally will talk to IFL once a week, or at least once a fortnight. Um, And, you know, that's a slightly different audience to the boxing news audience. There's things that he's kind of um, mentions every now and again about wanting to take over the sport. They've got this grand vision to kind of turn it into a a UFC-style model um, so I just wanted to get more detail on that from Eddie Hearn, um, which he does go to in, in detail. I thought, I thought it was interesting, as we touched on maybe two podcasts ago, the launch of Matchroom Media um, is is very interesting as well. What is that? How does that fit in with whoever his broadcaster is? I also talked at length, actually, we talked at length about his impending decision about whether he signs on the dotted line for another five years with Sky Sports as his exclusive UK broadcaster, or if he goes with DAZN. And a lot of what was said in that interview is very, very interesting. Um, As I say, it is available for subscribers in Boxing News at the moment. Um, I have to say in regards to what he's going to do with Sky Sports or DAZN, I'm still none the wiser. I'm also aware with Eddie Hearn that when he says things publicly and he's still in the midst of negotiations with someone that you know you don't take everything he's saying as gospel but with everything that he is trying to achieve and basically kind of as as succinct as I possibly can is that set up in as many territories as possible because what working with DAZN has shown him is that there is all of a sudden these spikes in various places all over the world 
he then wants to react to those spikes. If all of a sudden there's 20,000 new subscribers appearing in Kazakhstan, for example, then there's a market for boxing there. He also realises that he has to make his platform, in terms of his promotional platform, more appealing than any other promoter's platform. So his two-fight deal with Canelo Alvarez won't, he's not going to fight desperately to turn that into a 10-fight deal, but he will show Canelo that he's more than willing to work with other promoters. For example, if Canelo fights, so he's got the fight with Yildrim, then he will fight Billy Joe Saunders. Presuming he's still got all the belts, he'll probably then want to fight Caleb Plant. Now, there's an issue with Caleb Plant, as we identified last week, in that he's with PBC. Now, Eddie Hearn isn't going to stop him from going with PBC or appearing on Fox, but he will go collectively to ensure that he can make that deal, which is the fight that his fighter wants, and probably the fight that the sport would want at that time to prove who was the best in the super middleweight division. It's all explained in far more detail in, uh, in the magazine. He's not, as he says, he's not there to, to attempt to wipe every other promoter out, but he certainly wants to be that person at the very, very top of the pyramid. Now, with Eddie Hearn, he's, he's, he's got a huge ego. Some of these things that he said, I'm sure, not tongue-in-cheek, not tongue-in-cheek, but he's making it very clear because he knows who reads boxing news. He knows promoters all over the world read boxing news. And some of those things that he says, I think, were carefully, carefully, not planted, because it was up to me whether I put them in the magazine, but what I think it is is a fascinating, fascinating insight into Eddie Hearn's plans. And what is clear, and this was the striking thing for me. Now, I've sat down, I first met Eddie Hearn oh gosh, 11 years ago when he was telling me that Audley Harrison was going to become the world heavyweight champion. That's the very first, my very first encounter with Eddie Hearn and I've had numerous with him in the years since then. But one of the last times I had a real big sit down like this for, for, for a huge magazine article was the days before Andy Ruiz beat Anthony Joshua. There was a weariness about Eddie Hearn on that day and that was even before that Andy Ruiz Jr., had turned his world upside down. There was a weariness there. He was going from plane to plane, meeting to meeting, country to country. He has now, it's like he's got a firecracker up his backside. He is <laughs> absolutely, he's, he's, he's going to burst. He is so, so enthusiastic about it. Now, whatever your opinion on Eddie Hearn, whatever your opinion on him, he is someone to watch very, very carefully and see what he does. So we've, we've seen with, with Al Heyman and the PBC, I, I suppose a very, very small monopoly, an island monopoly dealing with a, a relatively small umbrella of largely American fighters fighting on one channel, fighting amongst themselves more times than not, or defending their world titles against their... Uh, mandatory uh, challengers uh, and against the voluntaries and, and so on and, and so forth. I, I, is your understanding that what we're going to see from Eddie is just a larger sized monopoly or one that is going to, to branch out with various tentacles? How, how do you, if you were to put into words for, for our listeners, what it is that he's trying to do. How would you convey that and give us a sense and an understanding of how that looks, how it's going to function, and what the landscape looks for that particular company and therefore the boxing world going forward? I think one of the things he's good at is that he's not, he's not, looking, for, 
he's not looking for a monopoly. Of course, he wants to be at the very, very top. He understands that there will be fighters that he needs or his fighters need in order to progress and for the good of the sport. He's not trying to create a monopoly in a way that other promoters historically have. Now, we know the stories even going back to, to, to Don King and Bob Arum. I mean, they did learn to work together in the end, but they were, everybody is always so precious, understandably, about their own product. He wants to, I think, I, and, I, and I did, I, I do genuinely, genuinely believe this from him. He wants to make the best possible fights for the sport of boxing. I think what we have seen is that the more that you try to keep, um, you try to, 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 to compartmentalize various different. So, so okay, I'm I'm with Bob Arum. Then I'll, I'm not going to fight anybody who isn't with Bob Arum. I'm with I'm with PBC. I'm not going to do. It. Then the sport has got a problem. He recognises that that's a problem. The difficulty, of course, is is taking that to the next stage. But there's some other interesting ideas. What he wants to do in regards to um, the the media output. So with with he is finding it quite frustrating. I think that everybody, in a similar way to the promoters, are just completely blinkered in terms of where they will broadcast. So, okay, if Sky Sports, for example, has got a, a big fight, or a relatively big fight, the only place you will see the promotional material for that fight is on Sky Sports. Problem with that is, everybody that's already watching on Sky Sports are already invested in it. They're already going to watch the fight. He's saying he needs to find new ways, perhaps to get stuff on BBC, on Netflix, with all these promotional things, hence hence Matchroom Media, that will draw in, and the word you use, and the word, the word Eddie used as well, is, 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 is the tentacles. Spread the tentacles out and draw more people in. Um, it's, people, will, people don't like the way Eddie Hearn works in this way as well. They, they feel that drawing kind of casuals in dilutes... The, the, the fights that the hardcore want to see because he will create a narrative and a story, see also a pantomime that just doesn't appeal to the hardcore audience. Eddie Hearn is definitely all about um, doing big numbers, doing, doing big numbers. But what he did say as well, which was, which was interesting, there's a section in there where we talk about pay-per-view and he said, wouldn't it be great if I could get the sport into a position where those pay-per-views that are doing... 300,000 buys and not pay-per-views. He was more open and more accepting of the fact that perhaps in an ideal world, the fights like Povetkin, Dillian White and fights like um, Chisora, Alexander Usyk, they're not pay-per-views. They're not pay-per-views. That's kind of what he's aiming at. So that anything that he's doing, say 600, so if, for a pay-per-view, it has to be 600,000, 700,000 minimum. Has to be creme de la creme. And so what that implies and what that means if you, if you really do simmer and boil it down is that his, his plan and his hopes it is to help, and I say help, not singularly himself, but to help to grow the sport of boxing because only growing the sport of boxing do you then get a situation where there are 300,000 regular watchers 
and then the pay-per-view just becomes way beyond that in terms of the, the numbers. So that's the, the recurring theme throughout the, the interview. The main bullet points are the, the section we're going to play, and, and obviously that theme's going to weave in and out of, of these uh, particular questions. He gives us an update uh, and some really significant uh, points uh, that you can underline regarding Fury AJ, AJ against uh, Fury. He also has uh, a few lines on the, the sanctioning bodies. First of all, we start with his reaction to that Panorama programme. I think boxing's unique, isn't it, in that there are no barriers to entry. So whether you want to become a fighter, whether you want to become an advisor, whether you want to become a trainer, whether you want to become a promoter, you can do it. You know, if you turn around today and said, I want to start advising fighters, you're off. You're off and running. Do you know what I mean? So anything that represents boxing in a bad light is never good for the sport. You know, the, the show we saw the other night didn't tell the hardcore boxing audience anything different because that story's been told but what it did do was open that story up to a much wider audience, which is not good for boxing because that's the wider audience I talk about mm -hmm. that I'm trying to convince to bring into boxing. So I think that with boxing, it always feels like... Not certain people, but people never quite want it to get there mm. do you know what I mean mm -hmm. you work and you work and you mm. work and you work and you go nearly there and then it's like no boxing's boxing's dead no look at these people involved in boxing no 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 and that's what we're constantly fighting against so I think that from our perspective we have no say over who manages advises represents fighters that would be a complete conflict of interest as a promoter and we will deal with who we're instructed to deal with from a fighter's respect to make the fights that the fans and the broadcasters want to see. And the reason this has come around, really, is because of the focus on the fact that Daniel Kinahan is Tyson Fury's advisor. And initially, when we had to make that fight, we were instructed to do so via Daniel Kinahan, not Frank Warren, not Bob Arum. Now, because of the Ferrari, that switched to Bob Aaron. Last summer, yeah. Yes, but now, obviously, it's, it's brought the, the story to a much bigger audience, thus the, the BBC Panorama story. Does it not make your job more difficult? You want to... Yeah, of course, it does, yeah. I mean, like I say, anything that's negative uh, or, or portray, anything that portrays a negative spin on the sport is bad news for me. It's bad news for the sport. Any sport. It doesn't matter whether it's boxing, whether it's football, whether it's tiddlywinks. Anything that portrays a sport in a bad light stops the progress that you're trying to make. Um, so, yeah, I think in that respect, it's, it's definitely not ideal. In regards, and kind of, again, with this whole taking over sport, we touched on, like, sanctioning bodies, which... For me, and I know there's a lot of people within the, the, the sanctioning bodies that, that, that genuinely love the sport. Mm. They're, trying to do, they're trying to do the best job they possibly can. I know it's very difficult. But ultimately, from the outside looking in, 
it's an impossible situation. Mm. First of all, what's your opinion of what the WBA are doing mm -hmm. at the moment? Because it's topical mm -hmm. in regards to the whole heavyweight farce the other yeah, week. Yeah. Um, and I still haven't quite got my head around how you, mm -hmm. when you take, you know, this, this take, and I know it's not going to happen overnight, mm -hmm. but how do you solve I, that problem? So with this whole takeover, it's not we're going to create our own belt. Right. Right. But it is going to be we're less reliant on the upon belts. the belts and the governing bodies. Um, firstly, every president of the governing body is a good person, mm -hmm. right? And they all love the sport. Maurizio Suleiman, like me, has been around the sport mm -hmm. all his life. Gilberto Mendoza has been around the sport all his life. Paco Valcazar, again, you know, been around mm -hmm. the sport. Daryl Peoples, really good, solid guy. Mm -hmm. The problem they have is some people, and this is particularly the WBA, are always trying to keep everybody happy. Right? And it's not in respect of the dodgy or the corrupt, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. it's just Gilberto Mendoza has a huge amount of pressure on him from me, from PBC from top rank, from golden boy, and every decision fucks someone else. And it's impossible to keep everybody happy. Yeah, so he might make a decision, what's the recent one? Uh, Josh Warrington, Kanzu, right? Leo Santa Cruz fought for about three belts against Javonta Davis. Mm -hmm. He's not gonna fight at 126 anymore. So elevate Kanzu, like let's, you know, Santa Cruz got knocked out. Let's put him into recess or something like that. No, I've, I've spoken to Leo and he is going to fight at 120. No, he's not. And, and, yeah. and we end up having an argument. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we fall out. Not forever, just for a couple of days. Right? And then with the whole heavyweight thing, Don King is putting huge amounts of pressure on yeah. the And then all of a sudden, man, you know, you get... What it is, it's like, it's like a snowball. You make a bad decision... And it ends up like, and that bad decision might have stemmed from uh, Fresa Quendo against, fucking can't remember now, Char, Char right? So you make a bad decision four or five years ago and it's fucking still playing out. <laughs> yeah. So to a point where you have to follow these resolutions. Yeah. So then all of a sudden, a Quendo's out and Char's there and then the next guy in line is Trevor Bryan. So that's the fight. Then Don King mucks around on the purse bid for about three years, right? And then they're trying to get Char into the country, which everyone knew was never going to happen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Don King goes to Gilberto Mendoza and says, well, Char can't come. So I've got Trevor Bryan here, and I've got number whatever in the rankings. Make that for the regular title. Oh, what? And then it's like, and in the end, it's like you, you do it, and then you make a bad decision, and it's like it just gets worse and worse. So they can't win, the governing bodies. Some of them are greedy. Some of them get paid too much money, in my, in my opinion. And some of them will hate me, for, you know, will disagree with me and argue and debate that with me till the early hours of the morning. What's but the solution? The solution is, it's a good question. Because you have to follow the rule, the, you know, the, the, what you can't do is ignore the rules. Right? One of the best moments I had was the other week when Josh Warrington vacated his IPF title. Because this, we had this issue with Kid Galahad, right? Yeah. All Josh wants to do is fight a big fight. 
right? That's all he wants to do. Now, we had that for February the 13th. Now it's Lara, whatever. But So effectively, he's going again April 24th, subject to winning this week. So I said to the IBF, look, he wants to have a massive fight, right? Which is really good for you, really good for the sport. But the fact is, Kid Galahad has earned his shot mm-hmm. in, in that respect. So mm-hmm. you can't ignore him. No. So it's like, on one hand, you're saying you need to allow this fight to go ahead because it's so good for the sport. But on the other hand, you're ignoring the rules and you can't do that either. But when I sat down with Josh, I said, look, Josh, after you fight Kanzu or Kick or uh, Gary Russell, you're then going to want to fight Santa Cruz or Navarrete. Mm-hmm. So you ain't going to fight Kid Galahad, are you? He's like, well, no, I'd much rather those fights. I said, exactly. Let's just vacate. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, then I'm not championing. I went, who gives a fuck? I went, you're getting the same money from me. I say, you still sell out Ellen Road. You're going to fight for the Ring Magazine title, which is the one you really want anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an example of a belt that has no sanction fees. Yet he's probably the most credible mm-hmm. in boxing. Mm-hmm. Right? So he was like, well, you know, if you, you know, and when we done it, Matt, he was like, oh, no more letters from the lawyers, no more IBF phoning me up, no more purse bids, no more kick out. You know, and it was like, now you can do what you want. You've got no mandatory. Yeah. Right? And what would you, you know, not, not being funny, but if, you, if, the, if that meant you being able to see Warrington Zoo or Warrington Absolutely. Russell, Warrington, Absolutely. do you care? But the, 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 the hard thing is the fighters care. You know, when the fighters come through, they want, a they want to win a world title. You know, Sugar Ray Leonard, Hagler, WBC, IBF. I grew up in that era. I know the belts. I know who won what belt. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I know they do as well. And, I, and there's never going to be a matchroom belt. Never. Not interested in that. Do you know what I mean? So you either have to align with one. Yeah. Or you have to work in a more laissez-faire, with a more laissez-faire attitude to say, I understand we've got a mandatory, right? It's your rules. See you later. We're off. Do you know what I mean? There has to be less focus on the belts moving forward. We've put too much focus on the belts. Okay. I've been guilty of that. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, where you say about WBA regular, oh, well, we get world title. And the fighters go, oh, I've got Not really, have you? you? Look at Devin Haney. He never wanted to be given that title. He no. wanted Lomachenko. That's what he was chasing. I feel like it's almost devalued him being given that WBC world title. He wanted to win it off a champion. You know? So actually, we just got to put less focus on the belts. And, you know, we understand the intercontinentals and stuff like that. Fighters love it and it helps you go up the ratings and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to play the game. Um, but we're not yet at a point, I feel, where we're prepared and ready to go get rid of the belts. Right? It might be. Yes. If we can't make the fights that we need to make. Yeah. Um, like mandatories... The IBF are a really great example of someone that just fucking puts in terrible mandatories yeah. time and time again. Yeah. You know, look at Josh Warrington's guy. Yeah. Uh, sorry, not Josh Warrington, Josh Taylor's guy. Mm. The other day, there was another one the other day. and Someone else thought someone ended in a round. You know, there's a good example. At the moment, where the money's not in boxing with COVID, that, that, that might be a fight. No one wants to see it. 
I know, I know, I know. That's the thing with the IVF. You kind of, but, on the, but on they the do hand, follow the rules. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the one hand, you think well, they're doing it the right way. But if they're the right people, they would do yeah. it. But if you were, if you're an IVF mandatory, that's a good spot to be in. Of course, because you know you're not going to get fucked. Yeah, of course it is. Um, Fury and yeah. Joshua, yeah. we anywhere? Yeah, we. Aram actually called me yesterday. And he was like, I think you should stop talking. You know, I'm like fucking hell. That's rich coming from you. Do you know what I mean? We were having a laugh because. You know, we did the call the other day and it's like every interview, it's like four questions on that and then, and I keep saying the same thing. Yeah. We're close, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. all I can tell you is, is that we have sent a draft contract to, to them. A contract that was based on discussions, not hope that they'd go along with everything we said. So a lot of talks to get to a point where we've both felt we had an agreement of the principles of the deal to move forward. That deal was sent to top rank and we were all right in that it pretty much was mm -hmm. the agreement. There are some minor points that they've come back with, which we are discussing internally. The next stage is to announce the fight, that both fighters have signed for the fight. I hope that would happen by the end of next week or something like that. And then we go out and deal with all these probably nine or ten requests to stage the fight, see what's real, where we want to go, what the fighters want to do, because what I don't want to do is do that process without a deal in place. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So who's actually going to do that? Are you going to go out to all of these sites? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them have come through me, some of them have come through Aram, and you know, we'll collectively go and say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll talk and say, well, Bob will say, I've had an approach from Qatar for some stuff. Mm. And I'll go, well, obviously, I did a show in Saudi. So, you, and then we'll bring everybody in. You know, we'll start going through the process. There may end up being a tender process, mm -hmm. a bidding process, mm -hmm. where it's almost like a purse bid. It's quite fun, isn't it? Mm. So you get all the nine countries together and you say you need to submit your bid, like you would do for the Olympics. Yes, yeah. You know, or whatever it is. Um, so... And that's quite a long process. Yeah. But what I first want to do is I want us to say to everyone, great news, it's on, signed. Right? Now give us three or four weeks and we'll let you know the date. It's going to be June. We'll let you know the date and the venue. But this fight is signed. It's agreed. It's on. And then I can stop saying two weeks. You know, one yeah, week. Yeah, there's no... There's no niggle. I'm not... I mean, I, I, I from... I mean, going even back to like Mayweather Pacquiao... Mm this thing would fall apart, but you never really thought it was actually going to happen. Yeah. More recent example, Wilder and Joshua. Yeah. Never got to a point where people were making the right noises. Yeah. This. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm conscious not to get too excited, but to me, this appears to be very, yeah. very close. There's no, no niggles no, in the back of your mind saying no, that, that I might mean, not. No. And listen, there will be some, and you go down to what Ron said the other day, you know, the changing rooms yeah, and yeah. that, but that's, that's stuff you work through together to resolve it. But, when you talk about Wilder Joshua, we never even had a draft. We never even had a draft contract. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? This is, all the points have been discussed. The contract's been drafted. It's been received. It's, you know, it's going backwards and forwards with minor points. I actually don't see any way this fight falls apart. Mm -hmm. You know, subject to the world just yeah, falling on its arms. Yeah. yeah. Which can happen. You know, yeah. but like there, we have no plan B. 
which is quite unusual, actually. Mm-hmm. And actually, fucking hell, we should have really. I might, might work on that tonight. But you know what I mean? Like, normally you'd go, well, if, we don't, if this don't go through, yeah. we'll take this fight or we'll do that. We are just like, this is happening. And he is in exactly the same boat. Fury ain't looking at any other fight, nor a top rank, you know, and, and we're not either. So when you've got the mindset of this fight's happening, this, you know, again, there's stuff, you know, all press tours and, oh, I'm not doing that one and we'll do that one first and like, mm. but that's, every big fight has that, you know. And do you think, and this is the last question, mm. do you think, you mentioned at the very, very starting that COVID is one of the worst things to happen mm. to any industry, yet it's also been, you could also look at it and say it's actually been really positive for the mm. sport. Do you think Joshua and Fury is kind of a symptom of that and that we will start to see no not that not that fight because I think that's just Covid or non-Covid that I was think, always yeah and I think that's just in fact it's a it's a bad time for that fight yeah because the world's still resetting yeah and countries are still saying fucking hell June we'll be, we'll be alright by June won't we yeah mm. you know but so they might have even made more money pre-Covid mm-hmm. But I do think the pay-per-view numbers are going to be huge for that fight. Um, but it's like even you go down to Hopi Price and you know people like that, where they realise now that that spot, that opportunity, is there, and it might not be around for yeah. another three or six months, and you've got to take the right, yeah. you know. And a lot of these kids now are going into fights where you know you're seeing them take chances because you just don't know. Yeah, you don't know what's going to happen in the world. So people are going, do you know what? I better fucking take my chance while it's here. World title shot, fuck. Might not get this again. Yeah. Whereas before, you just take it for granted that that's coming. Yeah. So, and yeah. it's enabled... I mean, the resetting of the purses, I think is something that other promoters have, have worked harder on than us. But of course, when 40% of your revenue no longer exists mm-hmm. into a show, you need to cut purses. Mm-hmm. But that shouldn't be held against a fighter. That's for the fight, the same fight they would have taken before. So if they're stepping up into a tougher fight, they need to be rewarded. And we're not looking to cut purses in that respect. But the days of the easy fights, hopefully, is you know dissolving. And it needs to. Yeah. It does yeah, need yeah. to. I agree, I agree. And I've just thought of one, one last yeah, one, yeah. one last one. You were talking about Sky Sports, zone potential mm-hmm. re-signing of the contract. Have you got to get that situation resolved as to what you're going to do in June if you're also promoting a fight in June which is the biggest fight in history yeah well that fight will that fight will fall in the Sky contract anyway will it yes okay. yes okay, yes okay. so that's, that will be on Sky um, but that we've got so much going on in our business that it's quite funny that you know this UK deal which is a major decision for us mm-hmm. I'm not saying we're not working on that and it's not on our mind but if, if the UK was our only market I would just be like fuck what we're going to do when we're going to make a decision, you know, but it's, it is, and it's, it's our biggest market. So it is, it is a massive decision for us, but at the same time, I'm not saying, oh, we need that done in the next two or three weeks, but we do need that done. You know, July or August is the start of a new deal. Then we do need that done, you know, by end of March, something like that, you know? So yeah, someone's going to be disappointed. Okay, Matt, um, lots to, to, to pick out from uh, there. Let, let's turn our attention to Fury AJ, uh, shall we, first of all. He's suggesting, actually, by the time people are 
uh, out walking the dogs, uh, heading up the, the mountains, uh, out on the running machines or, or whatever, uh, you, however you, you listen to this uh, podcast. By the end of the week, there, there may well be news coming through that, that AJ against Fury Fury, AJ has been signed. That was one significant pointer. He also said that June most likely and that nine or so countries uh, may well have to tender Olympic style their bid to host it. And therefore, we should know that within two weeks of the announcement. So it might be in three weeks' time uh, that we might uh, not only have the, the date, the, the venue, we'll have all the, the fight details. And he also said significantly at the end, so convinced are they that everyone's moving and rowing the boat in the same direction. We have no plan B, <laughs> interestingly. But um, I, I suspect you take that as a very, very good sign. Yeah, nothing but a good sign. And as we said it to um, Frank Warren, when we had Frank Warren on the podcast a few weeks ago, um, kind of living through so many of these fights that would just make so much sense, yet they just don't happen because of boxing. They just don't happen because of these boxing... Re you can tell when a promoter is spinning a bit of a yarn. You can tell when one side don't want it. There's just too much noise coming from them to suggest they're ever all going to be singing in harmony. Everybody's really quiet. Even by Eddie Hearn's standards, he's, he's pretty quiet on this fight. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned to him in there, that you kind of compare it to those fights and you, to, to this one, to this, to this negotiation period. I'm careful not to get too excited, but I think the only thing that is going to stop this fight from happening at this point is the world that we live in, as opposed to the boxing world that we live in. So therefore, coronavirus could take another horrific turn and there will be nothing. that we, we just will not be able to stage it anywhere on the planet. To me, that is the only thing that's going to stop, is going to stop this fight from happening in the next few months. And wow, wow. If Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua happens, what, what, what a story we've got in the world of boxing. Uh, regarding the sanctioning bodies, um, there were a couple of sort of interesting points that I, I, I thought that... Uh, Eddie Mayer there. The, the one was, he said, you know, would you maybe work with just one sanctioning body, question mark, dot, dot, dot. Don't know if there's going to be any developments uh, there. And and as regards, he mentioned Josh Warrington as well. Do do we view the situation with the IBF and, and Josh Warrington basically just as a case on its merits, a, a case of Josh Warrington taking control of his own career or perhaps the start of something else i think it's i think i think it's just that i mean not so much in recent years actually but but historically you win a world title and then you you try and do everything you possibly can to keep that world title but when you're being met with various various things that you just that just 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 don't make sense more and more I suppose what I'm trying to say is more and more winning a world title can stop you from making the progress that you want to make in the sport. So Josh Warrington, as the IBF champion, wanted to fight other other champions or he wanted to um, fight more marquee names um, and have the bigger fights. Yet, because he had the IBF title, that became... Um, a bit of an obstacle for him as opposed to a launch pad which 
back when there was only one or two champions per division, that's what those titles would be. So I think what he's saying there really is, is that, okay, yeah, it might be nice to have the IBF title on the line for this fight. It's a legitimate sanctioning body belt. But if we win it and then they want us to fight unknown from the middle of nowhere in our next fight, well, okay, we'll, we'll hand it back. We'll hand it back and we'll just move on. We'll just move on. I think what, what you take from that is that the sanctioning bodies are or will not be as important as we want them to be. The danger in that, of course, is that then you could be operating in a completely lawless land. I would like to see some kind of where we, as, as, I think as long as we have got the best fighters fighting the best, the sanctioning bodies will have to kind of toe the line a little bit as opposed to the opposite way around. Otherwise, they're just going to get lost. They're just going to get lost. And that is the situation, I believe, that we need to work towards. Was there, before we, we move on, because there's lots to get into regarding the fights as well, before we move on, anything else that Eddie said, either in the piece we, we played out or that's appeared in the, the magazine that you wanted to touch on? No, I just, I kind of, kind of touched on it earlier, really, in regards to that. I mean, it's quite, it's, you, 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 you'll sit down with Eddie Hearn and you, after having, as I said, I've sit down with him several times over the years and you're aware you're in the company of a boxing promoter and a very good, a very good marketeer. You're aware of that. So you, 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 you're conscious not to get too swept up in it all. But I often, I often just want to get more of a sense of, of um, Eddie Hearn, the man, and I think what's also interesting and what's worth reading about is is just the how burnt out he was, how burnt out he was prior to the coronavirus kind of taking hold of the world and stopping him from travelling every single day. Um, it's 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 a decent it's a decent read. I'm also aware. I'm also aware, and it kind of amuses me. I've got to be honest. We put the front cover. We put the front cover on um, on Twitter last night, and it's got Eddie Hearn on there, who is not the boxing hardcore's favourite. Let's be perfectly honest about it. We put the Eddie Hearn cover on there, and people are losing their minds without even <laughs> reading it. And, uh, and and to be honest with you, the feature will probably make you lose your mind. But I think at the same time, you'll be interested in it. It's pure. It's, it's basically Eddie Hearn saying, "I am unstoppable, and I'm going to take over. I'm going to take over the sport." But he does outline how he's going to do that. He highlights that he has had a weakness in the past, uh, and then he's now moving forward. It's it's worth it's worth reading. It's worth reading. Let's move on then to the action because uh, Matchroom are back in action with the first of uh, a few shows upcoming on both sides of the Atlantic, and it's a, a belated, and I think much anticipated, both for him and and for his followers. Return to the ring for Josh Warrington out since October 2019 when he hammered Sofian Takush in, in, in two rounds. Another terrific performance from uh, Warrington. He's up against Maurizio Lara, very, very young uh, Mexican. He's only 22. Uh, I must admit, I watched uh, both of Lara's last couple of fights, um, last two fights in particular, which is, is about 18 rounds worth of boxing. Um, Lara, of course, jettisoned um, into the the sort of international picture uh, only laterally. Um, and I have to say, I mean, it's not an ideal opponent 
for someone of Warrington's level, but in the current climate, and particularly given the ups and downs of getting fighters in the ring for Warrington, losing his world title or giving it up, uh, should we say, it's been a very, very eventful period for him. We'll talk about Lara next up, because as I say, I've, I've had a really good look at him. But um, just from Warrington's perspective, you, you painted the picture in last week's uh, magazine. Good read that that was. Some interesting points uh, there from, from that uh, particular uh, article. But um, what a time to be out of the ring, particularly when you're flying as high as he was. That's the, that's the, that's the only concern about this. I mean, Mauricio Lara, I, you, you don't think has any chance at all. I mean, they're already penciling in Josh Warrington for, for a return in April. Um, wasn't so long ago that Josh Warrington wasn't at world level and he thrived, didn't he? From the moment he went into the ring against Lee Selby um, and then after that, Carl Frampton, um, okay, struggled a bit with Kid Galahad, but who wouldn't? And then the Sofiane Takush where he looked brilliant and you thought even in that Takush fight, as it going up, you thought, oh, maybe, maybe he might take this one a little bit for granted. And he looked sensational in that and he got him out of there in, in two rounds. I suppose the, the real, real concern, and it's obvious, you know, you don't need to be a genius to, to come up with this conclusion, but it's Josh Warrington's first fight behind closed doors. He feeds or he has fed from that ferociously uh, supportive crowd in Leeds. Um, and he's going to be fighting behind closed doors. We saw that it did have an effect on fighters last year. He hasn't experienced it yet. On top of that, there's the amount of time he's had out the ring, which will have an effect. On top of that, he enters the ring without his world championship belt for the first time in getting on for three years. They're all things that could niggle. They're all things that might that might lead to a below par Josh Warrington. Um, I think really the onus for him is to come out of it without a cut, of course without a loss, but just get through the fight. Just get through the fight and he's up and running again. Mate, he, he's, he's not only get, going to get through the fight, he's going to get through it in double quick time. I can assure you of that. The last time I was so... Uh, belligerent about an opponent uh, for uh, a fighter was when Miriam Gutierrez fought Katie Taylor. And I, I, I said on the pod then, when was that? Back in mid-November. I, 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 I said Gutierrez that, yeah. is slow and just so far out of Katie Taylor's league that I think she, she'll get hammered. And she did. I mean, how she got through, you felt it should have been stopped. How she got through that fight was a miracle. I think it's a similar story here with, with Lara. Um, I, I've watched 18 rounds of him. I don't think I've seen him throw a straight punch yet. Um, he, he is so beatable. I think Warrington, if he's on his game, I think he'll absolutely hammer him. I think he'll hammer him um, and then move on to, to some of those other fights. Lots going on on the, the undercard. Of course, Alpha Barrett against Kiko. That's a great match. We mentioned it uh, in the last two pods as, as well. Kiko turns 35 in, in March. He's, he's not that old, but I suppose for a fighter at that weight, he is. Um, Zelfa looked mustard against Donovan when we, we saw him back in, in August. So that's a good fight for Zelfa and it's a, a perfect test for him, I think, at this stage of his career. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think I think it. I think it's solid matchmaking. I'm not convinced it's going to be um, a brilliant fight, but I think it's solid, solid matchmaking. What we saw from Barrett, and he was in the end. He 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 worked. He worked his opponent out. Finish was spectacular, wasn't it? Um, 
but he was learning on the job and hopefully Martinez has got enough left to teach him a few more lessons. Um, I don't think Martinez at 34, um, feel like he's been around, as we've said before, since about 1976, um, is that he's not going to be a massive, massive threat at this stage, but he will come with ambition. He will come with ambition. I mean, he hasn't fought himself. I mean, he fought in August, um, but the last time he was in a, a big-ish fight, probably have to go back to Gary Russell Jr. So for, for Kiko, this is, this is definitely last chance saloon for him. It is for the IBF Intercontinental title. Uh, the full title is held by Jojo Diaz. He makes his first defence uh, stateside this weekend as well against uh, Shafka Zonrakimov. He's from Tajikistan, based in, in Russia. He's unbeaten 15. This is an interesting one, you know, Rakimov. Southpaw, uh, he, unusual for a southpaw. He moves round the target very much like Ricky Hatton used to. He's got quick feet and he, he, he almost sprints round the other side of an, an opponent to open up body shots. He throws a terrific sort of left uh, uppercut come hook, come, come body shot. I don't think he's quite experienced or polished enough to beat Diaz, but he's he's very, very much a danger man, Racky. But I will not be shocked if he gives Diaz some problems. I just don't think there's quite enough experience and polish to go and win, but he, he's interesting. And then on the undercard of, of Warrington, Larry, you've also got Lee Wood up against Reese Mould, who's unbeaten in 13. He's a stable mate, of course, of, of, of Josh Warrington. He's won the English uh, title. Big step up for him as the vacant British featherweight uh, crown. And Lee Wood gets a, a crack at, at, at that for the second time, having... I've been beaten by Gavin McDonnell um, six or so years ago for the super bantamweight version. He, of course, he lost to Jazza and Natalie last year in that golden contract. So Wood, a heavy favourite for that. But uh, Sean O'Hagan and Warrington and, and anyone associated with, with Reese Mould say he's the real deal. So I'm looking forward to seeing if he can make that big jump up because it's a huge leap from the level that he's been performing at and then stateside at the MGM the bubble Joe Smith Jr. up against Maxim Vlasov that's for the vacant WBO light heavyweight title they they both have almost identical careers don't they both in their 30s Vlasov three years older at 34 they've both lost three times uh, Smith Jr. has been stopped once but um, that was very early on in his career, it's about eight or nine or ten years ago. And Vlasov, the three defeats have come to good fighters, world champions like Govatsky and Gilberto Ramirez. And the defeat to Chilemba nine or ten years ago, he, def he, he uh, avenged that uh, in 2019. He's been out of the ring for 14 months, so that's a, another... A title to be to be won stateside this weekend. So I think it's fair to say, Matt, there's loads going on, and it's the first of Matchroom's series of, of shows building up in a, a couple of weeks, of course, to uh, Canelo against Yildirim, and finally, I think, is it next weekend we get that uh, Avenesian against Josh Kelly fight on, having been on off on off on off. So busy little periods coming up. Two weeks, two weeks for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, and it's good, isn't it? It's good. And I remember, I remember going back to July when we had had that very kind of dark period in terms of we didn't know when boxing was going to come back and just the excitement that you felt when the the Queensbury Bill came back on, on BT Sport. Then a few weeks after that, we had the, the Matchroom Fight Camp. And you kind of can feel that excitement about this weekend now. Um, I think the break was very sensible. 
from from I think it was a good call from from uh, from Robert Smith to be perfectly honest with you just to take a step back for January there's only two two fight cards that really suffered as a consequence of that you do now start to feel like the sport can build some momentum some lovely some 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 good fights this week some decent domestic fights going on decent decent that will be interesting and the light heavyweight fight Joe Smith Jr out in America will be the one that I'll be the most interested in um, abroad, I think. Uh, fascinating matchup, that one. Um, but yes, just good to be able to talk about boxing that's actually happening again. Time now to take a look at This Week in History, and we go back to the 11th of February, 1983, at the Centrum, Worcester, Massachusetts, and the a man himself from that neck of the woods, Marvin Hagler, defending his WBA at WBC belts for the sixth time against uh, Leicestershire's Tony Sibson, uh, who'd been European champion, former British and Commonwealth champion uh, as well. He really had to earn his stripes and, and earn his tilt. It really is a, a fight of its time, Matt, isn't it? Because, you know, that back in the day when you'd You'd be British Commonwealth, then European champion. You'd fight an eliminator or maybe two. Then you'd get a tilt at the one uh, champion. And Hagler was that champion. And Sibson earned his right. And he gave it a right good lash. Not the, not the, the perhaps the as bombastic and, and front food aggressive as perhaps some would have uh, expected from Sibson going into that. But this, I think, was one of Marvin Hagler's best performances of that period and it was a vintage period of successful defences in his middleweight reign. People often kind of point you, you the obvious thing to pinpoint to in Marvin Hagler's career when you're when you're picking out his best performances to go straight to that Thomas Hearns fight just because it was so violent and so thrilling and and and, and Hagler was just so savage and spiteful in getting Hearns out of there but I think if you're going to go back and pinpoint the absolute peak of Marvin Hagler's career. It is around this period. You mentioned Sibson, who was a top fighter. If Sibson was around today, he would be he would be one of the world's best, as he was then. But but it, the, the the chasm in class that that that, that Hagler exposed in this fight um, was something else. The way that Hag, Hagler's right jab. Now everybody knows anybody. Everybody in boxing knows that Hagler was a converted. Southpaw, but he uses that right jab to establish the distance and establish the pace. When Hagler was allowed to do that, when Hagler was allowed to dictate the pace and dictate the distance, he was very, very close to unbeatable. When he's at his best, he was very close to unbeatable. We go back to that Hearns fight, and he's drawn into this dogfight, so he's not in control of, of what he wants to be. He was actually in danger of, of being pulled out of that fight with a cut. We look at the Sugar Ray Leonard fight, who got in his head. Um, he wasn't unbeatable in that fight, as we know. But when he was in charge, as he was from the opening bell against Tony Sibson, I don't think there's anybody in history who would have stopped him. I really don't. He was terrific, particularly the first couple of rounds. You watch Hagler box and move and the jab. Uh, occasional switches, um, but largely out of this 
of the Southpaw stats. He was absolutely terrific. Uh, came into this with five successive knockouts, another one to make it six on the bounce, and then it was six successful defences with another five knockouts after this one as well, building up to 87 and the fight, the monster fight, the mega fight against Sugar Ray Leonard. Performances against Duran, Hearns and Mugabe in the build-up to that 1987 classic. And uh, Tony Simpson subsequently would again win the uh, British title and he would again fight for uh, world titles up in weight against Dennis Andrews, which he lost and against uh, Tate for the IBF back at middleweight as well. That was in 86 and, and 88. So still plenty of history after this fight. Go and watch it. If you want to see Hagler close to his very best, this is the fight. And the, the build-up, watch the HBO broadcast. Reg Guttridge sets the scene from the UK, goes to, uh, the, the, the is it the Queen Vic in Leicestershire where, where Tony, I think it is where Tony Simpson is, is doing his training. It's so interesting to watch the build-up. To be honest, some of it is quite sort of antiquated and there are, there are racial stereotypes there um, and national stereotypes that you probably just wouldn't get away with and now in a, in a broadcast. But it, that's off its time. So go and watch that. It's, it's about an hour long or thereabouts. And you can watch it from start to finish as well as the fight. It's a, it's a kind of vintage piece of, of TV as much as it is vintage Marvin Hagler. It's brilliant. Just look at Harry Carpenter's jacket that he's wearing when he's out there in Boston. <laughs> he's just got this wonderful jacket on that, that I would wear today. I would, I would, I would definitely wear that. And I'm sure you would as well. Light up my alley. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. You are. You're absolutely right. The build-up to these things is fascinating. You get an insight into kind of that that mindset that Marvin Hagler would get himself into before a fight. And just that kind of challenger mentality that he always had. Um, I think the finish, really, you mention about Marvin Hagler and there would be the occasional little switch. Now, the right, the right jab that he'd got was always thrown. It wasn't a flicking jab, put it that way. It's always thrown with force. But just as Sibson is starting to really tumble into the kind of trouble he doesn't want to get out of, there's an ever so subtle switch from Hagler so that he is then back in the orthodox stance and he's loading up completely on his right hand. You see Sibson almost try to go with him and then Hagler is back again southport to apply the finishing touches. It's absolute boxing mastery, absolute boxing mastery. But just, just, while, I've, just, just while we're on this, because this back in the day, so we talk going back to the 1980s. Now, Geraldine Davis, who for people who don't know, is a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, kind of... Uh, woman who works in boxing and she does PR she does marketing for various people back then she was organizing the press trips so she was taking people out uh, on the press trips and this was one where she had an absolute nightmare keeping two former um, world British middleweight champions in check Alan Minter and Terry Downs both of them are absolute raising hell on the flight over demanding more beer you've got you've got them both chugging away on cigars to the point where the pilot drags Geraldine in and says <laughs> if you don't calm those two down 
I'm going to land this plane in the ocean. Can you? <laughs> Do you know I've got I've got a Terry Downs interview that a friend of mine he was a, he was a friend of the the Downs family, uh, the the one of the grandchildren uh, he knew, and he conducted his own sort of personal uh, interview with Terry Downs. Um, about five or so years before Terry died. Terry died a couple of years ago, didn't he? And we actually played that interview. I got it off my mate and I, I, we actually played it out um, on one of my, my Box Nation shows. So I will keep that maybe on, on the, the anniversary of, of something significant in Terry Down's life. I will get that for you and we'll play it out on the pod because it's basically a monologue. It's about a 10 minute monologue from Terry Down's. That is just vintage Downs. It is just unmistakably Terry Downs. So I, I promise you, I'm going to write it down and we'll play that out to you because it is gold dust, absolute gold dust. I will get that back uh, from my mate if I've not got it on record uh, somewhere. We'll get that to you. Next up, it's our book of the week, our recommendation. Might be a book, might in due course be a film or a documentary. This week... Uh, my book recommendation is McIlvanny on boxing. Uh, Hugh McIlvanny, uh, one of the, the, the finest uh, journalists and, and writers, um, I think it, it, perhaps ever, it's fair to say. Uh, Scottish, uh, writes particularly about his three loves, which are in no particular order, boxing, football and horse racing. Just so happens that two of those are mines uh, as well. And he's there are three books which are collections of his articles that appeared over the years in the observer and indeed in the in the sunday times and it's basically McIlvanny on boxing McIlvanny on horse racing and McIlvanny on football um and i, I thoroughly recommend you get the McIlvanny on, on on boxing uh because it is the, just every article is close to being a work of art and there's so many memorable lines. It's also an insight into how the sport has been covered at a different time to the one that we, we enjoy or at times endure uh, right now. So I'll, I'll read out just a couple of excerpts because these are these are two really good examples of, of what McIlvanny does. And I don't think anyone writes with empathy. There's only one writer who's ever come close to writing with the empathy of Hugh McIlvanny, and that is Donald McRae. Nobody else writes with that kind of empathy. It's just a gift. But then to write as well as they both do as well just takes it to another level. So this is from uh, the Sunday Times on the 20th of November, 1994. Uh, the headline is, Jones shuts Tony's big bad mouth. And the reason I've, I've chosen this is it's basically one paragraph two sentences and nobody writes a long sentence that just encapsulates everything better than McIlvanny does so here it goes James Tony's mouth had been a flamethrower but once in the ring his threat was snuffed out like a candle by the gale of swift and varied aggression that came from Roy Jones Jr and their fight for Tony's IBF super middleweight title which was hailed in advance as a classic war between equals could not have been more one-sided without involving the use of a stretcher. At the end of 12 rounds, the beaten champion's contribution to the scorecards hardly went beyond marks for attendance. That's just a great example of how McIlvanny put his, his sentences together. And then here's one on the empathy. And, and this is it's just a, a beautiful uh, article on 
Johnny Owen and the the death of of Johnny Owen, and it and it puts into context the 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 difficulty I think that uh, an incident and a death like this for all of us that love the sport and love boxing, the the, the difficult place it, it puts us all into, and McIlvany addresses that with with this paragraph, and he says. But our reactions are bound to be complicated by the knowledge that it was boxing that gave Johnny Owen his one positive means of self-expression. Outside the ring, he was inaudible, an almost invisible personality. Inside, he became astonishingly positive and self-assured. He seemed to be more at home there than anywhere else. It is his tragedy that he found himself articulate in such a dangerous language. And that kind of puts absolutely the conflict that we all have when those rare situations crop up, but also to describe it with such empathy and, and, and beauty. And nobody did it, I think, or does it quite like McIlvany. So that's the book recommendation. McIlvany unboxing. Get it if you can. I'm sure Matt probably has it. Did you meet Huey at all? I met him on several occasions, Matt. Did you ever meet him? No, I, I, I never met him. He's a great, great um, hero, hero of mine. I never met him. I spoke to him on the phone on a couple of occasions. Um, and the last time I spoke to him on the phone was when I asked him to do something on Muhammad Ali or if he would consider writing something in, the, in Muhammad Ali's obituary issue. And he was very polite, uh, but he said, I will only be writing one. I will only be writing one obituary on, on, on Ali. Um, which is perfectly understandable. Um, on the very, very, very odd occasion that I will look at something I write and read it back and think, yes, that's exactly as I wanted it. So on the odd occasion that I get to spend more than just a few hours when I can get to spend a few days on really crafting something and I read it back and I'm relatively pleased with it, um, and then you compare it to something like anything like you've just read out, something that McIlvenny was so gifted at, and you realise you are nowhere near, nowhere near. Um, <laughs> he was Champions League, and compared to Hugh McIlvenny, I, I barely, barely would 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 register in in the old Vauxhall Conference. To be honest <laughs> with you, he makes his talent is or was so um enviable um that you read something like that and you think is well, what I'm not, I'm not going to write anything again never going to write anything again he is to my mind the greatest sports writer of all time and most of his coverage in that is is about the greatest Ali him, himself and real time and place. Um, so get that if you can. I met Huey on a few occasions because, uh, you know, like me, boxing and horse racing were his two great loves. Football alongside that as as well. And I'm, I met him on, on three notable occasions. Particularly, we we had a, a horse racing trip in the build up to the Cheltenham Festival. Uh, once where we there was only a, a selection of journalists. I think there was about half a dozen of us uh, or broadcasters. I was the one broadcaster who went. Um, and then there was maybe five or six journalists. And we all went across to France, uh, to Francois Dumaine's uh, yard. 
uh, over near Chantilly. And it was a terrific trip. Um, and uh, I, I saw Huey on that trip. Um, I met him... It would be when was when was Hatton Mayweather two thousand ten? So I think I I think I no, met two thousand seven. Oh it? sorry sorry uh, yeah two thousand yeah 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 sorry I beg your pardon. Um, and I met him the December before that at the, the Horse Race Writers annual sort of a dinner, and and he was at that. And uh, Huey would um, Huey'd like to a drink as much as me, and he would be as garrulous. <laughs> Uh, and as entertaining, as belligerent, and as opinionated as anyone else when when he had a drink in him, he was good company. Um, and I met him at that horse race writers, and I, I remember it was obviously a few. That was the December, early December, um, and he was talking about uh, Hatton against Mayweather coming up. And I remember the line he said to me um, about Mayweather. He said, "Yeah, you know, Hatton's pretty good, isn't he? He's he he he's decent." But this other fella, he said, this other guy, he's got the stuff. That was his line. <laughs> he's got yeah. he's got the stuff, talking about Mayweather and how right he was. <laughs> and then the last time I met him was a few years ago, uh, late in his wife. Um, and it was probably the longest I spoke to him. Um, I was on a, uh, a boat trip down the, the Thames. Again, it was a kind of racing um, sponsored thing. And we went up and down the, the Thames. It was a very, very boozy affair. And I spent pretty much the whole evening, probably would have been four or five, six hours up and down the Thames drinking champagne with Huey and his wife. Um, and I would say almost all of that time was spent talking about boxing. And it was just an absolute pleasure to pick his brains to share a few laughs and and talk about that sport. Very, very lucky boy. So please read that. McAvaney on boxing. Hugh McAvaney's uh, articles from the, the Sunday Times and The Observer over the years. Right, before we finish up, just a couple of your emails. Last week I said your homework was, what would Ali's ring walk tune be? Some people got back in touch. Thanks to Barry Jones via Twitter. He said, rudimental, can you feel the love? Um, and then Prince... Uh, Lee on the Canteen, uh, also via Twitter, says Prince Buster's All-Stars linger on. And actually, I think one of the first lines, I listened to that, one of the first lines in that uh, mentions the, uh, Cassius Clay and his right hand. So um, that's in there as well. Uh, Lewis Watson got in touch and he said, uh, I was blown away by the play One Night in Miami a few years back. It showed the relationship or it, it put together a, 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 the relationships or a fictional evening where uh, after Ali beat um, Liston, uh, Ali, Malcolm X, Jim Brown uh, and Sam Cooke all spent a, an evening uh, together after Ali sh shook up the world against Liston. Uh, so uh, Lewis uh, says on the back of that, the gang's all here, I'm sure, uh, would have been an interesting uh, one. And uh, finally, Norman Barton uh, says, uh, away from Ali, he says, I could imagine marvellous Marvin Hagler coming out to the wild frontier by the prodigy, uh, where there's a line where you, uh, your dreams get real or your blood gets spilled. So thanks to Norman uh, for that. I, I thought personally, maybe James Brown be the man. I can imagine that. Just a, such a, 
a vintage song for a vintage uh, man. So those just one or two of our uh, recommendations. So that just about uh, uh, that hangs things up for us. We've got one or two emails which I'll I'll read. Uh, Jimmy Ingleby and Mike Hills have been in touch again. I'll I'll maybe read those emails uh, next uh, week. And maybe your homework for next week. Get in touch with us. Is your earliest boxing memories? Who or what got you hooked or involved? on this great sport. So your earliest boxing memories, who or what, an event or a fighter, a fight, or perhaps an incident, uh, what was it uh, that got you involved in this great sport? Get in touch with us, the opening bell podcast at gmail.com or indeed via uh, Twitter uh, at Boxing News uh, Ed or at Matt C Boxing News or uh, me at Alec Steedman. But that just about uh, covers it. Gives you a chance, Matt, to go and do some decorating. Absolutely. I'm glad you didn't ask me if I'd done my homework because I've had I've been quite busy enough. So yeah, I'm going to I'm going to um well I think my my daughter um has got to do her live PE lesson. Um and then I think after that, yeah, we're going to get busy with um with a spot of decorating. What a good life we've got, eh? Good stuff. Thanks, Matt. Uh, And we'll be reflecting next week on how Josh Warrington did and all the other boxing news from around the globe. But once again, uh, please uh, rate and review, uh, subscribe, rate and review on uh, iTunes in particular. Gives us a a chance to to hold our pitch in in this competitive world. So please do that. Rate, review and subscribe on uh, iTunes. And I hope you've enjoyed. Bye for now. (laughs) 